Hello, Bayesian Conspiracy listeners. This is Kyle, the sound editor and sound designer of this podcast. We at the Bayesian Conspiracy are looking for a new musical track to begin and end our podcast, as the heavy metal track that you've been hearing thus far was just meant to be a placeholder that we never got around to updating. That is, until now. So we'd like to ask you, our listeners, some of whom surely have vastly superior musical composition skills than we do, if you'd like to compose something for us. Your name will be credited at the end of every show. Send us your submissions in MP3 format to BayesianConspiracyPodcast at gmail.com, and please keep the track no longer than a minute or so in length. Thank you so much for being fans of the show, and we are very much looking forward to hearing what you all come up with. And now, back to the show. We're excited about today's guest, Brian Dunning. He runs the Skeptoid podcast, has been doing a weekly episode for the past 10 or 11 or 12 years. Steven's been a fan for a long time now, like at least five years, right, that you've been listening to his podcast? Mm, closer to 10. Okay. Yeah, so it's been fairly close to the beginning. Yeah. Um, since like I first heard about podcasts, I was Googling for like something about evolution or something, and episode 10 was an evolution primer for creationists, and that came up. Okay. Uh, so I, I don't, it wasn't like new, but he was like in the 40s maybe when I started, so. And he was one of the early uh, skeptic podcasts, uh, him, Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, there's a few others, but he was in the initial, you know, movement. Yeah, I think so. Anyway, he's awesome, and uh, a couple years ago, he did a, uh, a film, or I guess several years ago, he did a, a film that's available online on YouTube and on, on Skeptoid.com called uh here be dragons which is like a 43 minute introduction to critical thinking that he put together and i think it's pretty well done but it was basically just him on like no budget but there was like you know cgi or uh whatever you call it green screens and this and that he put together a refined continuation of that called uh principles of curiosity last year and that's primarily what we'll be talking about this episode as well as his upcoming film coming out in 2018 called Science Friction, which is about the misrepresentation of scientists when they're brought on as talking heads on TV. Um, they're often misquoted and, uh, you know, they ask one question and then they'll play a clip from another part and there's no, like, waiver, or excuse me, you sign a waiver saying, I get no green light on what you guys put out there. You guys can use whatever you want, so. And uh, for those of you who have not been with us for that long, I think he was one of our, in our first Within our first 20 episodes, right? Yeah. We interviewed Maybe him? first 10. Maybe first 10. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So that one was good. Yeah. We'll, we'll link to that as well. But yeah, we we are fans of Brian Dunning here. For sure. And I never recommend that anyone start from the beginning from our show because the first, we were finding our sea legs in the first couple episodes. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, you know, grab grab the f- ones that look fun. Definitely don't um, listen to the first minute of the first episode. Right. <laughs> that was our first iTunes review, which reminds me, <laughs> yeah. um, if you do guys have time, uh, I don't like the new podcast app on iOS, but it does make it super easy to rate and comment on podcasts. You don't have to like go to the store and search for it. If you have 10 seconds, you know, at a stoplight or, you know, at some other safer spot to run in and leave a uh, rating and a comment, we read them and I really appreciate them, even the, the negative feedback. But yeah, by all means, it helps us be visible and helps people find it. So if you like it, it's the easiest thing that you can do to contribute and share it. So yeah. All right, let's get into the interview. Let's do it. Hello, welcome to the Bayesian Conspiracy. I'm Eniash Brodsky. I'm Steven Zuber, and today we have a guest uh, back from Skeptoid, Brian Dunning. Brian. Hello, hello. <laughs> hey, hey, how's there. it going? Hey, it's going great. Thank you, for, thank you guys for having me. No, thanks for coming back on. Um, I think today we were going to talk about a couple of things primarily was going to be, uh, your film last year that Skeptoid Media put out called, uh, The Principles of Curiosity. 
and the one that's currently in funding, um, Science Friction. And we can kind of take it in whatever order you guys are inclined to. Yeah. Uh, it's been uh, it's been an exciting uh, year in, uh, in in making little movies. <laughs> it's been it's been a lot of fun um, uh, with principles of curiosity. You know, we got to do some travel. We got to go to some uh, really neat locations. Put together a a product that we're super proud of. And uh, science friction, the the next movie for 2018. This is going to be a a little bit different. It's more of an interview show, but we're going to be going to a, a lot of places again. So um, a lot of fun, uh, and hopefully it's going to end up with, uh, with a couple of uh, really useful films that uh, uh, teachers are going to enjoy in the classroom environment, but also the general public is going to enjoy. Um, science Friction is actually aiming for a limited theatrical release, so people in the world will be able to see it as well. So yeah, there's a lot to talk about with these projects. Excellent. So I have not seen um, The Principles of Curiosity, although I did hear your podcast about it. Can you give us a quick summary for our listening audience? Yes. Principles of Curiosity was the video that we made in uh, 2017, uh, and it was released uh, about mid-year, I think about June. It's 40 minutes long, so it's not as long as a feature. The idea for that is that teachers can use it in their classrooms. Now, I've been doing the Skeptoid podcast and all kinds of related web series and other movies here and there um, for a long time. And the piece of feedback that has stuck the most was that teachers were using these materials in classes, either high school or college. Uh, they're using them in critical thinking classes or just almost any kind of class in a lot of cases where they just wanted to introduce students to more of these critical thinking type topics. How do we analyze the things that we hear in pop culture, things that our friends tell us, miracle fad diets, miracle cures, this and that, whatever it is, all kind of the usual skeptical topics. So Principles of Curiosity uh, was intended to be and is a, uh, a dedicated unit on critical thinking, analyzing the things in pop culture, um, and it presents a simple method that anyone can follow to do that. Um, and to, to sort of wrap this up into the length of a short film, we kind of took the whole scientific method and compressed it into what I call the three C's, which is challenge, consider, and conclude. You hear a funky idea, the first step you do is challenge it to see if it's even true at face value. If it passes that test, you go, then go to the second C, which is consider. You consider all of the alternate explanations. And we talk about lots of examples and how to go about doing that. And then if you get past that, then the final step is conclude. You conclude which of these explanations best fits the observation. So as, a, as an overall example that we follow throughout the film, beginning to end, we took my favorite mystery of all time, which is the rocks in Death Valley that mysteriously move across the desert floor all by themselves. And so we got to go out there and, and film for uh, about three days in Death Valley, uh, which is not easy to do. Getting a filming permit from the National Park Service was one of the most difficult, well, definitely the most difficult filming permit I've ever gotten. Oh. Um, but it was well that. worth it. We had a great time there, so the whole crew got to hang out. We stayed at the Stovepipe Wells, my favorite hotel in the world. <laughs> Um, eating and drinking our meals at the Stovepipe Saloon. <laughs> they, <laughs> and um, They don't just let you uh, film at will on national parks, in national parks? Well, 
Certain, no. Um, I mean, oh. anyone can go there with your own personal camera and take your own personal stuff. But if it's going to be for any sort of a, a commercial purpose or if you have anything like professional film equipment or if you have a film crew, anything like this that's likely to cause any sort of an impact to the environment, mm. then you have to have a permit. And when whenever you have a permit, you actually have a ranger physically with you the entire time. Oh, so it's so got to get kind of had, expensive. Uh, Ranger then. Alley. She was very nice, but uh, very firm. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Is, do you have to pay for the ranger to be on site? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Um, it's it's not inexpensive. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we, we budgeted for this, and we had um, th- that film was crowdfunded as well. Uh, we had the final amount that we could spend on the movie, and we budgeted everything out accordingly. We cut one or two of the exotic locations that we were hoping to go to, mm-hmm. and we really just ended up having two away locations, which was the Death Valley one, and then, of course, the um, U.S. Space and Rocket Center in Huntsville, Alabama, where they have Space Camp. Uh, mm-hmm. We did a lot of stuff there. Everything else we just did locally in the L.A. area. We went to some sound stages and filmed a lot of stuff on sound stages. Um, and we, we, we also, one of the things we wanted to do in Death Valley was a lot of aerial footage. We had a lot of calls for aerial footage. Uh, but that's something that the Park Service won't grant under any circumstances pretty much to anyone. And the idea behind that is they figure that your, your drone is noisy and is going to disturb other park visitors. You know, it's, it's kind of silly. On the one hand, we were tens of miles from an, another human being from, from uh, most of the places we were hoping to do the aerial footage. Yeah. But on the other hand, it's, it's, you know, it's the California deserts. There's a lot of places you can go that are outside the national park. And so we, we were able to get all the footage we needed just by doubling other locations for the places in Death Valley we were going to use it. Yeah, and it's also kind of a tragedy of the commons problem where if you have a drone out there, that's no big deal. But if they just allow anyone to have their drones out there, then suddenly you got a sky full of drones. I, I you know, drones are not don't drones are not new. I mean that we call them drones, but there's always been radio controlled planes and radio controlled gliders. Yeah, and I don't ever remember them being a you know a plague of a problem of swarms of these things flying around. <laughs> I think they used to be more expensive, though. Like, nowadays, you can get a decent drone for 100 200 bucks. Well, yeah, if, if you have one that is not going to go very far or do very much. But uh, if you've got a, a professional one that's lifting a 4K camera up there that's got, you know, good stabilization and everything and is able to go pretty far and, and to fight the winds and just be a rock-solid camera platform, you know, you got to spend at least a grand and, and usually more and... And they do make noise. Um, I, I grant they are, they are pretty noisy. I did not realize. I guess there's a lot more to this movie-making business. <laughs> That's why we do podcasts. We can just do it from the living room. <laughs> right. <laughs> Have a microphone and a couch in your set. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, the, the, the next film, Science Friction, is going to be um, more microphone and a couch, a microphone and a couch in your set. Um, it's it's going to be just uh, mostly interviews of scientists. I, in fact, I guess we, we might as well segue and talk about uh, the next film. Well, oh, wait, before wait, wait, we do that, wait. yeah, I, I had questions about the first one first. Yeah, let, let's stay on let's stay on principles of curiosity because there's a couple other things I want to talk about. But fire away with your questions. Oh, okay. Um, so what were what were the three C's again? The challenge, uh, challenge, consider, and conclude. Okay, I. 
I, when I was listening to your podcast, that kind of jumped out at me because I, I like those. And those are certainly much better than just the standard accept what people say or whatever you've read on the internet sort of thing. But on the other hand, I've also met some conspiracy theorists who do exactly that. And the problem is that they, you know, you can challenge and consider and find sources that are sound very convincing for the conspiracy theory side. It, it's not like someone came up with the idea that the earth was flat. Everyone knows it's round and is taught that in school. And it's only when you, you know, get to be teens or early 20s or whatever, and you start challenging the idea of a round earth and considering these these other things that are out there. And how do you, I mean, like, is there tools given within this video for how to discern good sources versus bad sources and how to come to reasonable conclusions? Yeah, that's why I need to watch the whole movie. No. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> um, Ab absolutely, yes. I mean, the, the three steps by themselves are of no more value than, than any one-sentence description of any process. Yeah. So that's what the whole 40 minutes is packed with. How do we challenge? Why do we challenge? What tools do we use to challenge? And then when we get to consider what's a good source, what's a bad source, how do we choose? Um, and so, yes, very much. We, we go into great depth on, on each of those. And we have a couple of examples for within each one of those three steps, as well as applying each of them to the overall example that we're talking about. So I think it's, it's not only very well explained, it's, it's presented in a fun and entertaining and really easy to follow and kind of self-evident and self-obvious method. Uh, the idea is every little scene, the person watching the film is going to go, oh, okay, yeah, that totally makes sense. And they should be able to predict what we're going to say next because we are trying to present a method that anyone can pick up and follow. So I think we do a pretty good job with it. But you watch the movie and then you tell me. <laughs> okay. I maybe I should. Uh, I'm also curious, since this is the Bayesian Conspiracy Podcast, if the uh, conclusions that I, because since this is aimed more at kids, I would assume it's more of a come down firm on one conclusion or another. But do you at all introduce the idea of maybe having uh, mixed probabilities in your head? Like, okay, based on all the evidence, I will assign 98% likelihood that this was done by humans and maybe 2% likelihood that aliens were involved in some way. Or are you more like, just discard the aliens idea because that sounds really just completely ridiculous? Well, yeah, I mean, we can't be all things to everyone. So in yeah. this film, we, we basically try and encourage them to come up with the solution that fits best. Okay. And we pretty much leave it at that level of complexity. We don't define what best means, you know. And we do talk about Occam's razor, for example. That's one of the main tools that we use when we're, when we're uh, concluding which, which explanation fits the best. Yeah, it's a good one. And, and we've got a fun little animated sequence for Occam's razor and how that works. Ooh, is it like a ninja slicing things apart? Uh, With a giant razor. <laughs> well, it features it features a Sir William of Ockham. Oh, okay. Uh, in a uh, in a little animation where he kind of comes to life out of the stained glass window. It uh, it's cool. Yeah, it is cool. Awesome. So did you want to run through? We could do the Death Valley example or another one and just see how to approach it with the principles of curiosity. Or do you want to save that for uh, bring listeners to the Skeptoid podcast or to the to the movie itself? I think I think anyone could watch the film in less time than it would take me to uh, <laughs> to try and to try and regurgitate it from memory, uh, but it's easy to watch because it's it's free and it's online. Um, that's one of you know one of the things that we do as a nonprofit um, is we're providing free tools. 
So everything from Skeptoy Media is available for free. It's at principlesofcuriosity.com, and that's basically just a screen that has the YouTube page on it. You can find it on YouTube as well. Cool. So principlesofcuriosity.com. It's only 40 minutes. It's something you can watch while you're eating your dinner tonight. All right. Sounds good. Yeah. And hopefully hopefully it'll get people to, I don't know, to, to care more about knowing the truth as opposed to simply being right. Is a thing that I always have trouble with, where a lot of people seem to just want to be right about things and get so married to their opinion that they aren't willing to examine it and and care more about correcting themselves to the truth uh, rather than to to correct other people to see things their way. And and that's a difficult problem to overcome because everyone believes that what they know is right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's what, that's what the word belief means. I wouldn't be believing it if I didn't believe it to be true. Mm -hmm. So as far as I know, everything I believe is true. And it's really hard to convince people of that. And when you, when you move into the scientific method, the first thing you've got to be able to do is discard all of your preconceived notions, discard all of your beliefs, and then just go with what seems to be supported best by the evidence. Yeah. And, and, and then as we all have so much experience, when you're dealing with someone who tends to come down more often on the paranormal side, for example, they just have a whole skewed set of criteria that they use for, you know, what's, what is evidence? What, what is reliable evidence? Mm -hmm. They tend to look more toward anecdotes and, 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 and they consider, they'll, they'll consider like things like, well, uncle Bob was a very reliable old guy. He would never tell a lie. There's no reason he would make up a story like this. So that's good enough for them. That's why it's not an anecdote because it's evidenced by uncle Bob's personality. Right. right. And, 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 and a line of reasoning like that can easily sound persuasive to most people who have not been exposed to better tools. Yeah. So and to if the you fact and I that I were to sit down, we'd, we'd come up with the we get the better better evidence, and you compare them. You say, "Oh, well, this makes a lot more sense than the Uncle Bob story." Yeah, and the fact might be that Uncle Bob may just be mistaken. You know, he's not a liar; he just happened to be wrong about something for whatever reason. Yeah, I always point to there. There was a there was a pro paranormal TV show called Fact or Faked, and I always point to that title as that is the perfect example. That's a false dichotomy mm -hmm. because if we're looking at a ghost story fact or faked are the two least likely explanations. Yeah. yeah. It's almost certainly the case that someone was honestly mistaken. Yeah. And whenever someone does something like that, I always consider it, I assume that it's a, a, a rhetorical trick to try to get you to, to believe them. Like the uh, Lord liar or lunatic uh, dichotomy, trichotomy, I guess. It's like, well, if he's not a liar or a lunatic, obviously he must be Lord. I'm like, it's not just those three things. There's a lot of other options in there. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I grew up my entire life when I was a little kid until the age of probably 20, fully brainwashed by the argument that the Bigfoot proponents made, which is oh. either there is the biggest hoax in history has been successfully carried out by tens of thousands of people over thousands of years or hundreds of years without anyone ever getting it wrong, this incredibly well-orchestrated hoax, or there's an unknown species of great ape out there in the woods. And that was totally persuasive to me. Wait, what totally was... Totally persuasive. What was the hoax supposed to be? That there's not a great ape? Well, no, no. The, the hoax would have been all the sightings and all the footprints and everything. That oh. All of these witnesses were deliberately 
uh, conspiring to put this hoax together. I see. Okay, that it couldn't just be individual actions and and things being aggregated. That it had to be a conspiracy. And, and that suggestion also completely ignores the probability that almost all big wit- Bigfoot witnesses are probably honestly mistaken. Yeah. I feel like honestly mistaken should just be like an automatically inserted third third alternative to any proposed dichotomy or trichotomy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it should. I think that's that's overwhelmingly the the correct answer. Mm-hmm. Even you know, even if you're uh I'm trying to think of another, you know, like a ghost example. You know, you hear something in the middle of the night and you know, or painting falls off the wall or something. Well, nothing's ever fallen off of here before. Right. Um, you know, but my aunt, she doesn't lie. So yeah, exactly. You know, maybe she she's mistaken. Maybe things do fall off. Maybe it shook, maybe the cat knocked it down, you know. Mm-hmm. So I don't have much to add. I guess I'm just thinking that there's just that should be just the the, the core lesson of of I guess communicating the idea that it's okay to admit that you're wrong, right? Yeah, is that our perceptions are fallible? Yeah, and frequently so. And you you can you can say something that someone said isn't true without you know attacking them as a liar. Yeah, right. In fact, this whole this whole thing is going to be. Uh, the third film, I hope if scheduling works out, it'll be the 2019 film. Uh, but that's <laughs> too far out in the future to talk about. But oh, okay. I've got that one all all planned out as well. Ah, I'm having fun with these little movie things. Yeah. I, you know, I find a similar kind of thing happens with uh, proposing actions uh, as opposed to this, um, this, this uh, just honestly mistaken thing. Sometimes you'll like propose an action and people will shoot it down or do whatever. And they, they, they act like just going with the status quo is kind of the default. And you have to point out to them, choosing to do nothing is also a choice. <laughs> is doing nothing better than this alternative that I am proposing? And sometimes it is, but other times choosing to do nothing is even a worse idea. Yeah, I think there's a whole lot to just dive into with like false dichotomies and that sort of presentation. But speaking of diving into things, do you want to go into more principles of curiosity or do you want to move on to uh, the science fiction? I will point out that uh, sort of the, the, main, um, the main benefit of, of uh, principles of curiosity is the accompanying educational materials. Mm-hmm. So on the website at principlesofcuriosity.com, uh, anyone can come and download the educational materials. And what are those? Is it like worksheets? It's it's basically this uh, big book. Um, it's a PDF. Uh, it's free, so we don't actually send books to people. It's a PDF. Right. Um, and it's uh, 40-something pages, I think. And it has uh, just a whole bunch of uh, classroom exercises, lessons, uh, worksheets, uh, things for, again, broken out into various different programs. Uh, for teachers to use. So it can be a complete unit right here. Uh, a teacher can show the video in class and then keep the students busy for uh, for a week. And actually, there's stuff for them to do before watching the movie as well. So we have kind of some before and after, uh, before we learn this thought process and after, how do we treat mysteries and things that we hear in pop culture. Uh, it's a very valuable set of materials, and it's free, and it's awesome. So if you're a teacher, come and grab it. You know, we knew we know a few people that are thinking about having children. We should maybe point them at this and ask them if they find it useful for the the upbringing of the little ones. I imagine it's not geared towards that zero to eight demographic, but well, you know. <laughs> <laughs> never too young to start. My aunt's a high school teacher, high school science, uh, psychology, and chemistry. I'll make sure that she gets this. Uh, I'm sure she could use a day off to show the kids a video. And if it's a video that's not Shrek or The Breakfast Club, I'm sure that you know then everybody wins. Hey, man. 
the Breakfast Club is awesome. <laughs> it is. It was the first like two times I saw it in school. <laughs> I must have seen, through, through primary school, I must have seen Shrek six times. Okay. So <laughs> educational documentary is probably better use of everyone's time. <laughs> and it's it's also in all the uh, indexes for teacher resources, like the National Science Teachers Association. It's it's they've got it listed and huh. and all of these fun things. How did you get that listed in there? Well. Uh, <laughs> That's that's what part of the film's budget went for was for uh, marketing it to educational uh, resources. Is that like just writing, or did you have to fly out and meet with someone for this? Uh, no, but we had to have a number of Skype conversations and phone conversations and everything, and fill out forms and approvals and all this kind of stuff. It was it was exceedingly bureaucratic, but uh, I think I think well worth it in the end. Yeah, that's really cool. Congratulations. Yeah, thanks. All right, let's move on to the science friction. Or did you have something else you wanted to add on this one? No, that's it. Okay, cool. So the science friction thing I'm really excited about because I hate the uh, news media and the way they represent science, but I should, I should let you talk. Science friction is quite simply, it's a documentary about scientists who've been misrepresented in the media. So all of them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anytime, anytime a scientist comes on as one of these talking head experts in some documentary, you practically always get edited out of context or otherwise misrepresented to make it seem like you said the opposite of what you were saying. Mm. Um, this happens to everyone who's been on these shows. It's happened to me a number of times. It's happened to a lot of other people in, in much more severe cases. Um, and, 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 and this is just the tip of the iceberg because if you go out from Okay, scientists who've been misrepresented. Now, how far do we want to expand that? Scientists who have been so attacked and falsely accused of things and had their careers brought to an end. Um, you, you, we can't even cover all of that stuff. So we're going to focus on um, at least getting people to consider that when they watch Ancient Aliens and hear some physicist coming on and saying, yes, I think Ancient Aliens probably did build the pyramid. This is why you can... This is how you can analyze and, and see, okay, this guy was probably edited out of context when he said that. Yeah. yeah. So yep. they're, very good at, uh, they're very good at asking the right questions and getting you to say the right things so that they can then edit them back to front and, and string together this quote from people. Yeah. And it happens more often than any of us would suspect, and it happens quite blatantly. Like so in science friction, we're going to go and talk to a bunch of the scientists that this has happened to. We're going to see the clip of how they got misrepresented. We're going to have them explain what happened in their own words. Ooh. We're going to let them clear up the record. And we're going to, um, you know, maybe take a look at their actual research they're doing. Tell us, uh, show us what the facts really are. And um, one thing that I would like to do at the end, as the end credits are rolling, I want to get a clip of each of these people saying, I've reviewed how I appeared in this film, and I certify that I was not misrepresented in this. <laughs> oh, my God. They should do that with every movie. I know. Well, here's the best one. Now, we've, we've talked to a lot of people. Um, we've already done a dozen or so interviews. Uh, we have a lot more planned. Um, and the best one was um, Richard Wiseman, who's an experimental psychologist in the UK. Fun, funny guy. He's awesome. Everyone loves him. Um, and I, the only conversation I had with him was just, to, I met him at a conference and I said, Hey, do you want to be in this film? Has anything like this ever happened to you? And he kind of like turned angry and grabbed me and shoved me into a corner and got right in my face and said, 
I will never appear in movies again because all of this, because of exactly the things that we're talking about, because they always try to misrepresent what he says. Mm -hmm. And he says now at his university, when someone sends in a media request for someone to be interviewed or anything, they send back this ginormous set of contracts that the film company has to agree to. Nice. And it basically gives the, it gives the university final cut approval, gives them all, all kinds of insight into the script. They have to approve the script. They have to approve the questions. They have to approve the editing. They have to physically be present when those scenes are edited. And all of this stuff that film companies are going to go, oh, pfft, forget it. There's no way we're going to do all of that. Yeah. yeah. And Richard said to me, and I'm going to, I will have the same deal with you too. When we make your film, I said, well, that's fine. We'd, we'd of course welcome that. Mm -hmm. But what I said to him was, you know, I don't need any examples from you of when you've been misrepresented. I just want you to repeat what you just told me. And I want to get that on film yeah. because it's so, it's so elegantly showed the scope of this problem and the lengths that you have to go to mm -hmm. to avoid being victimized by this as a science expert. Mm -hmm. It was dramatic. It was, it, was, it, was, it was great video, even though I didn't have a camera with me. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's disgusting how well it works. I, I was raised a Jehovah's Witness, and they had a book about evolution supposedly disproving it. And after I left, I found that there were parts where scientists were literally quoted to be saying the exact opposite of what they they were saying you know you just read one line further on in the quote and you can see that he's like is the exact opposite of what i would say because that's a load of crap you know oh yeah the famous example from the origin of species where he says that something along the lines of uh i admit that the idea that the eye could be produced through incremental improvement sounds on its face absurd or something and then the next sentence goes on to begin the chapter about how the eye actually evolved yeah um and that's a, so it's easy enough to quote mine like printed quotes, even if you're not, and that's not even, you know, opening the door to like just straight up lying and saying that somebody said something. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's really awesome how you can, uh, I, I've seen at least one documentary on this about how to watch for cut edits to like, if you don't literally see someone saying the words into the camera, they, you, who knows what was actually happening at that time. <laughs> right. If they cut away uh -huh. to some B roll of something, guarantee you they, they edited the dialogue. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or if they cut to the other person doing like a reaction shot, that's another, you know, red flag. That something <laughs> happened. They had to cut out a line to, to fit their narrative. So science fiction's goals are to give the some of the people that you're talking to a chance to say, this is what I was actually saying, and to, I guess, educate the, the average viewer how to be aware of it, or rather, not only to be aware that this is happening, but maybe also show some tips and tricks on how to, I guess, watch for specific instances or... Yeah, if we, I mean, it depends on what we come up with. Uh, you know, we're going to be asking... Asking all of these people, many of whom have quite a lot of media experience, we're going to ask them for their thoughts on, you know, can you suggest any tips and tricks and that kind of thing. So who knows what 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 kind of stuff we're going to come up with. I've I've heard from like when you were talking to what, who did you say that guy was that shoved you up against the wall? <laughs> Richard Wiseman. R Wiseman. Okay, <laughs> when you were talking to Wiseman, I've I've heard other people say as well that they simply don't talk to the media anymore because there's no way not to get distorted. They, yep. Yeah. I, I remember when uh, the the quantum teleportation article uh, article came out, and they managed to sort of you know teleport an electron into lower Earth orbit, kinda. But uh, all the headlines were scientists beam object into space teleportation now true. I'm like that is that is no that is not even close to what happened. But they they want the headlines, and then they never. Uh, and, and 
That is such a, in fact, we talk about that in Principles of Curiosity, this, this fact that when you see these crazy headlines, these unbelievable headlines, we talk a little bit about how that comes to be. And the unfortunate fact, or fortunate or unfortunate, is that universities have PR departments. Mm-hmm. And those PR departments are always looking for something to promote their university as being on the cutting edge. Yeah. And so they have non-experts go and talk to their professors and the professor probably tells them the truth, and this person probably misunderstands it or comes up with some wild and crazy version of it. And the university itself actually makes this problem worse by promoting these horrible headlines. Oh, God. See, I thought it was just the media for getting rid of all the, the educated scientists on their science reporting beat. Like It would be <laughs> like sending someone out on the sports beat who's never seen a football game or know what it entails, you know? Like, so when you kicked the field goal unit, how did you feel? <laughs> and, but, oh my God, the, the, the university is into it too. You know, not, not intentionally. It's, it's through a lack of expertise. Mm-hmm. And, you know, everyone has, everyone has their motivation. And the university PR department is not there to educate people about science. It's there to attract funding to their institution. Ah. Uh, there's another kind of variety of that, of like popular, um, I guess, uh, you could say, I guess, outlets um, for you know new developments or whatever. I'm thinking specifically of things like uh, like I fucking love science, mm-hmm. um, which I was a fan of for like the first couple of years, and I haven't looked at since, except for when I occasionally see it reposted in, in pictures elsewhere. And that's just become you know this BuzzFeedy clickbait. It's it's probably the kind of place that you know linked to science can now teleport you to space. Star Trek's confirmed or whatever, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's that sucks because they're. Heart seemed to at least started have started in the right place. Might still be in the right place, but it looks like they're kind of just you know, like you said, or with a you know media or the university PR departments more interested in getting clicks than than presenting actual stuff. Yeah, I hate them in part because they disenchant people from science. It's they they publish these you know initial trials that haven't been you know rigorously controlled or randomized it's just like hey look this is something neat we should look into this some more and they take it and report it as a confirmed fact and then a few months later when the repetition is done and it turns out no that was an artifact of the data everyone is like what do these scientists know they're constantly going back and forth on things and they're like no this was this was just something we were looking into it wasn't like confirmed theory or something that's assuming anyone even follows it up. If they're just following the headlines, they're going to just see every six months that Alzheimer's has been cured and that you can regrow limbs and stuff. Right. And which the, works great if you're a small sample of rats, but if you're uh, if you're not... And then it feeds into the conspiracy theories again. It's like, look, right. scientists are able to teleport people to Mars and back. They're hiding all sorts of things <laughs> from us. I hope that that's not a huge demographic of people that are following it too far, but yeah, I'm sure it's out there. I mean, it's the kind of people... I have a... This reminded me the... Because I was thinking of, um, in the trailer for uh, Science Friction, available at sciencefriction.com or .org? .tv. .tv, that's what it was. Sciencefriction.tv has a little, I don't know, minute and a half trailer for uh, the documentary. And there's a brief snippet with Richard Dawkins. I remember that he appeared in, uh, what's that, Ben, no. Oh, Expelled. Yeah, Expelled. What was that guy's name? Ben Stein. Ben Stein, that's what it was. I want to say Ben Stiller. And it's the kind of thing where... Uh, you can you can phrase the question and then, or I guess, you know, like we talked about, you ask a leading question, they give an answer like, oh yeah, sure, I admit that it's certainly possible this didn't happen, but, and they cut off the but, and then they give that, that soundbite somewhere else. But I was just, I was just thinking of, uh, this isn't really relevant, but it came to mind. That when I was in college, there was this, uh, 
my first in real life that I knew of, like full young earth creationist, and he was giving a presentation because they were assigned to the class on different subjects. His was on evolution, and he gave like the full Ben Stein version. Mm. And then we were like debating it on like the class forums on the uh, school website. And he was like, scientists don't know anything. It's, you know, everything's always, you know, hypothesis. So that's why it's all always up in the air. We used to think the earth was flat, et cetera, et cetera. And I was like, you realize we're having this conversation from, you know, at the speed of light on our computers, right? <laughs> in different parts of the world. And we could be having this conversation from two different airplanes. Mm -hmm. Like clearly science knows some stuff. How do you come down on this? <laughs> if we didn't know anything, why planes wouldn't fly. Come on. Yeah. So how long is science friction going to be? Is this uh, another 40 minutes? Uh, science friction is actually going to be full feature length, Ooh. and it's going to uh, it's going to have a theatrical release. Awesome. At least that's that's the plan. It's being directed by Emery Emery, who is um, a, a, a director and editor. He's he's uh, good friends with uh, Penn and Teller and Paul Provenza, that whole crew. Oh yeah, uh, he was part of the movie The Aristocrats, and he's done a number of other films with them. And uh, he is easily able to get a movie into a, a minimum a limited theatrical release, and then you see how it does in the festivals, and hope for a wider um, a wider distribution. So um, this film is absolutely in, uh, intended to be on that track. That's fantastic. And who do you have lined up so far uh, for for interviews? You know, I, I you can see a lot of them in the trailer. Um, we don't have anyone under contract, so I kind of hesitate to say. Mm, okay. Uh, okay, but. Um, it, you know, interestingly, if you, if you look at the trailer, I mean, you mentioned Dawkins is in the trailer, James Randi is in the trailer, Michael Shermer, um, a, a number, Michael Mann, a number of big name scientists. But many of the cases where this has happened the worst, the most blatant, are scientists you've never heard of, because the the shows have no reservations about taking these nobodies out of context and right. twisting their words. Yeah, they don't have a platform to correct it from. Yeah, I can tell you right now, the most dramatic stories you're going to hear in the film are from scientists who you may have seen on a TV show, but you didn't, wouldn't have known their name. And it, some of the cases are just absolutely shocking and infuriating. Is it, can you give us an example, or is that too much of a spoiler? I, I, again, I'm, I, we've talked about this a bit, and we've decided since nothing's under contract yet, and we're, 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 we're keeping, keeping the specific examples under wraps. Okay. What about a personal example from your history? Or is that is that also you know, reserved I, for film? I, I, I have a number of them, and they're 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 super mild by comparison. Um, one, for example, was um, I was on a, a couple of episodes of Weird or What with William Shatner, hmm. and we were debunking a séance, and we had a séance was being performed that we had set up, and the séance performers were using all of these old tricks, and uh, we were. The, the, the subject of this episode was this one famous series of seances um, held a long time ago by a UK group called the Society for Psychical Research. And they basically hired some seance performers to perform some seances for them, a series of them, uh, where they used these exact same tricks. And the Society for Psychical Research people came out and said, there's no way we could have been tricked. Some of us are physicists and scientists and experts in this or that, and we could not have been fooled. And so we declare that these seances proved the afterlife is real. Mm -hmm. And so we quite trivially replicated all of these standard tricks because the things they did in their seances were all the standard tricks. I mean, they were so inexperienced, these Society for Psychical Research people, they were so inexperienced in seances that they weren't aware what's what the usual... Stage tricks are yeah. that science performers do. 
So anyway, we, 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 we replicated these tricks, and then um, I, gave, you know, I, I gave my little spiel talking about some stuff, and then Shatner comes on with his narration. He wasn't there, but he comes on with his narration and says, Dunning believes that this proves that the, the skull experiments were faked. Oh. It'd have been nice like, if he had just, you know, if he could pass that back to you and be like, that's not what I said. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I didn't say it. Now, that's a, that's a very minor example. And it's not that bad because, of course, the skull experiments were faked. Uh, I have no doubt of that. No reasonable person has any, any serious doubt of that. But we don't have any proof. Mm-hmm. Right. You came out with a softer, like, you know, more approachable, less uh, dogmatic sounding position, which is we have, very, we have no reason to believe that they were real, right? Uh, which is like, you know, to, to people who aren't looking to deliberately misinterpret you sound about the same as we think it's fake or we're, we're pretty sure it's fake or even we know it's fake. But to somebody who is already inclined to believe this stuff, they're gonna be like, oh, how does, how could he possibly know it's fake? He's obviously full of shit, right? Mm-hmm. So exactly. Yeah. 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 So, you know, that's, that's like I say, that's the mildest example you're here. And we may even include that on the show just as a lead in for, you know, here's how I got interested in investigating this topic, something like that. Cool. So when, when does this uh, start production on this? On science so we've done a few interviews. We need a lot more. It's being crowdfunded right now uh, at sciencefriction.tv. We're almost at the 20% funded mark. So we've got a ways to go. Um, we are really looking for ways to promote this crowdfunding campaign more. Um, and as we, we have on the FAQ of the page, if anyone's interested, if we don't make our, our goal, we are still going to produce the film. Even if we never get another penny in, we're still going to produce the film with what we've got. Oh, nice. It's just not going to be nearly as good or nearly as effective. Right. No one's money is going to go to waste, though. Cool. That's, that's fantastic. At least you're getting... I'm super stoked about it, yeah. Yeah. Do you know when it might be available? Because the film festival season is, what, in the autumn? Um, they, they, the film festivals that I've found, I, I'm not an expert in them, but I find them um, having their little deadlines for entry year-round. Year oh. I, I have no idea when the season is. Uh, we're, we should be able to get it completely wrapped um, within the, before the fourth quarter of 2018, and uh, hopefully then uh, release sometime in 2019. That's, that's the general schedule. And I think that's, until we have a better idea of how the crowdfunding is going is gonna to finish up, I think that's about as specific as we can guess right now. Awesome. Sounds exciting. It is. And you know, what, the great thing about this is everyone you tell this concept to, they just have a fit. They say, oh my God, that sounds like the best thing ever. So, uh, I mean, that's, that's one of the reasons I'm so enthusiastic about it is because there's just so much interest in it. Yeah. So you almost teased us with a third movie in 2019. Yeah. That's going to be another smaller one, like principles of curiosity. That's going to be more for the education market. That's going to be just through produced through skeptoid media. Um, and you know, I, let me focus on one movie okay. at a time. Though. Okay. Cool. <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to devote any, uh, steer any resources away from science friction because that's what the focus has to be on right now. Yeah. And are you still like uh, working on your podcast at the same time as the movies are being done? Oh yeah. Um, the, the, the Skeptoid podcast, which, you know, comes out every week for 11 years now, that's, that's still the nonprofit's bread and butter. So that, that can't, that can't go on hold. That's going to continue. Um, I had a lot of fun this, this past week, 
um, with a great old mystery that had, that had kind of freaked me out for a long time. That didn't freak me out, but I couldn't find the solution to it for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and that comes out on Tuesday. So was the, yeah, an- the Skeptoid was the, podcast is always fun. Was the answer that it had been a conspiracy worldwide? 30,000 people involved? <laughs> <laughs> no, it was, I, mean, I, won't, I don't mind telling you, it was, it was <laughs> about the, the provenance of a particular old photograph. Oh, okay, neat. Well, the episode I was talking about, which came out several weeks ago, oh. <laughs> was about the Civil War pterosaur. Pterosaur? Yes, there's a, there's a famous picture that you can find all over the internet showing a group of Civil War soldiers standing around this pterosaur of some, of, you can't like really tell what living species one? it is. Well, one that was, appears to have just been shot. Okay. It's like just laying there dead, and they're all posing triumphantly around it like maybe they just shot it out of the sky. We don't know. Uh, but uh, there's, there's actually two versions of this photograph, different soldiers, a different animal laying there on the ground. Um, but the photos are aged in like exactly the same way with the same kind of ragged rips in them and shredded edges around the photo. Hmm. Um, and the, the second photo, everyone says, oh yeah, that was made for a TV show called Freaky Links. Hmm. And we think that they just couldn't get the rights to this famous one, so they made their own. They just hoaxed up their own photograph. So, of course, the famous one is being promoted by the young Earth creationist crowd because they're always trying to prove that dinosaurs still live because that would make it more likely that dinosaurs died in Noah's flood. And that's the explanation for the dinosaur bones that we find. They're, they're trying to say dinosaurs still live to this day? Yes. Like, not as yes. descended as chickens, but like real dinosaur, rawr, tiny hands, <laughs> T-Rex dinosaurs. Absolutely. If you dive into cryptozoology at all, um, there is a branch of cryptozoology that believes, hey, there is said to be this, you know, this river serpent in Africa or something, or the, you know, the, the ropen is one of these flying pterosaur type, type dinosaurs. And all around the world, there are various animals that sound like a dinosaur still living in this jungle somewhere. You will find almost universally that these are promoted by young earth creationists. Because they fully believe that Noah's flood was what killed the dinosaurs, and therefore it's reasonable that some dinosaurs might still be living today. They're trying to prove that the Earth is young, and so that's where that whole branch of cryptozoology gets its gets its horsepower. And you learn something new every day. And for the the uninitiated, cryptozoology is the study of fake animals, or maybe more charitably, the study of hidden what, animals. Hidden animals, yeah. H- hidden animals, yeah. Crypto. Yeah. I like saying fake animals. But, yeah, it's uh, more accurate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it, cryptozoology is fun because it's you know it's a, a lot of it sounds and a lot of it is quite reasonable. We, we do discover new species all the time. Mm-hmm. Sometimes even megafauna, you know, a new species of gazelle or something. It's not. It's not all little insects and, and microbes and things, we do still find full-size animals running around that are previously unknown to science. That the interesting thing is we they're always discovered by zoologists, yeah. not by cryptozoologists. Right. <laughs> you know, Bigfoot, uh, Loch Ness Monster, these are all cryptozoology topics. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, one of the more, I don't know, tame pseudoscience branches in that, you know, Nothing, 
you for the most part your personal health or you know that your the well-being of your family isn't going to hinge on whether or not you believe in bigfoot right right it's not like if you are going to try and cure your your children's illness with homeopathic remedies or something right yeah um at least bigfoot is more like a harmless hobby yeah and it's also like like Brian, like you just said is one of the more like plausible kind of things like there's animals out there like we know that there are ape shaped animals so it's not like you're have to violate the laws of physics for these things to exist it's just an indicator of a bad way of thinking yeah yeah, that, and that's that's actually the key is because, well, what's the harm in believing that uh, there's an animal in the Amazon that's a leftover giant sloth, which is one of the one of the cryptids that they talk about? Mm. What's the harm in believing that? Well, the, the narrative that supports the existence of that animal is built on the string of all of these anecdotal thinking. And you have to train yourself to recognize anecdotal thinking because the more you put your faith in anecdotes, the more likely you are to go get a alternative treatment when you have cancer or something. So it's not like these beliefs are totally harmless. By themselves, they are harmless, but a belief doesn't really exist by itself. Beliefs affect your other ex- beliefs, and they're, they're intertwined with them. So it's important to weed these out wherever we find them. Right. Yeah, beliefs like that can only exist in a web of, or like on an edifice that allows for other weird stuff. Or other bullshit, oh, right? Very, very yeah. well said, yes. So, like, if you... Yeah, this, the same pro- thought processes that lead you to, you know, disbelieve in, in the giant sloth still existing, you know, the same ones that you can use to attack, uh, you know, fake medicine or, or conspiracy theories or something. Mm-hmm. I think that the general misstep that a lot of these are making, whether it's, it's uh, you know, conspiratorially suppressed, you know, uh, medical cures. You had that good episode a few months ago about... Um, just the big pharma conspiracy in general, uh, or you know, uh, the moon landing hoax, or the the giant sloth. Everywhere, I think the com- one of the common threads that allows for any of these is somewhere in your chain of reasoning, the 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 believer allows a small probability to be a large probability in their thinking. So you know, yes, you could say that there's a point, you know, zero 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 one percent chance of the giant sloth actually being out there. We just haven't found it yet. But somewhere in their daisy chain of thinking, they've multiplied a small po- uh, a small possibility into a, a large probability. Do you think any of it is like optimism and hopefulness? Like the world would be objectively cooler if these sorts of things were true, right? And maybe they just oh, they want yeah. the world to be that totally. way. Totally. You know, we all have our preferred beliefs. We all have our preferred way of looking at the world, the way the way we things the way we wish things were. And if there's a 1% chance that this unlikely thing is true, um, we grab onto that 1% and it holds much more weight than the other 99%. That's, that's you know, the hardwired way that our brains work. That's, that's confirmation bias. We're looking for the things that we already agree with. I think that, and we assign them more weight. I think this is where the, the, the role of like legends and cultural narratives and stories comes in that we need to make it or I would like to see more stories that don't romanticize that sort of wishful thinking and optimism and more things that really romanticize this burning passion for knowing what is actually true and having a correct model of the world and having those be the heroes, you know? I really, I would love to instill this sort of desire for truth, even at the cost of your own personal feelings of of security and and happiness because, because you're just that principled of a truth seeker you know 
Well, part of it means facing up to an undesirable reality too. Like I was talking to somebody just like a month ago who was not really like a, a supporter, but they were kind of tacitly behind the idea that it would be great. I think they were, you know, at the level where I'd say that they might've believed this, they were saying that, uh, you know, they, I think they probably believed in the agent aliens kind of thing, but they were saying that, you know, it's, they're, they're still out there and they're keeping an eye on stuff. And that was like the way they slept at night worrying, you know, if nukes were launched, these aliens would catch them or something, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, I imagine that's kind of like a religious fervor that, you know, oh yeah, God wouldn't let anything bad, any bad thing happen. So they've, they've, they've shed that, but they're, they're, they grab something else. Um, you know, a simulation, someone who's steadfastly believes that they live in a simulation might say, oh yeah, nothing's, you know, this, this will be fine because the simulation, they don't want the simulation to crash or something or... Uh, you know, so there's, I think there's a level of just hoping for some safety net for at least some of these things, right? Uh, it should be great if my green tea that I just finished could cure my cancer, <laughs> um, but that doesn't make it so, right? Yeah. And then there's, because there's, there's so many stories, especially in anime, where uh, the, the hero wins at the end after like being completely beaten down and everything just by getting right back up and sheer force of will and passion. Like, I have to win because it is so important for my family. And I mean, that's, that's great and all, but I would like to see that sort of thing like, I have to know the truth because it is important for humanity. That'd be fun. Yeah. But it's less, I think, you know, cinematically interesting than watching somebody get up after getting their ass kicked, right? Uh, you, could, so. you could do it if you're good. <laughs> <laughs> You know, for me, that, that came about just when I, when I first started doing this kind of thing and finding the solutions to mysteries that had always intrigued me mm-hmm. as a kid for literally decades wondering what the truth was behind this old story. And then when you actually find out, to me, that was, that's, that's as exciting as it would be to some people to have their green tea cure their cancer. Yeah. So, you know, I, f- for me, I, I found... A, a, a passion, a, an enjoyment in discovery that happens to be discovering what's true. Do you remember what one of those early stories were that you were driven to, to find the truth about? The one that I always bring up as an example was one that uh, I finally solved in the first year of doing the Skeptoid podcast. So this was 2000, it was probably early 2007 when I came up with this particular episode. And the mystery was um, a house that had been billed as the most haunted house in the world. It was Borley Rectory in England. And, you know, once you do this stuff for a living, you learn that every house has been promoted by somebody as being the most haunted house mm-hmm. in, mm-hmm. you know, the state, the country, what, what so have you. And this one was promoted by a showman who moved into the house. He lived with the family for a while. He wrote three books about it. Um, presented himself as a, um, you know, a scientist, a researcher, but in effect, this guy was just a P.T. Barnum. He he was involved with the Piltdown, ma- uh, Piltdown uh-huh. Man uh, skull hoax, uh, and some other some other famous archaeological hoaxes. Uh, this guy was just he was a P.T. Barnum of the day, but I, you know, I didn't know that. I read his books growing up, thinking, "Wow, this must have been the most haunted house in the world." But other people were involved in this haunted house as well, and there seemed to be a pretty steady, pretty solid body of evidence for some of these things that had happened. And the one that always freaked me out was what was described as automatic writing, writing that appeared on the walls while people watched. Mm-hmm. And there was photographs of these words. It was um, The word said, um, Marianne, get help. 
and, and, and a few phrases like that in kind of this weak, spidery handwriting. And the fact that these were photographed after people watched these words appearing by themselves on the wall, uh, that just blew my mind. You know, I could be skeptical. I could say, oh, you know, you see a shadow. It might have been something else. It doesn't have to be a ghost. But what else could possibly cause this to happen? Mm -hmm. And it was just through a case of, and I think this was original research. I don't think anyone ever had ever come up with this. I found some of the diaries of one group of mediums that came into the house that were invited to come into the house and do a seance and try and contact these ghosts uh, that people believed lived there. And they were doing it basically by a Ouija board. So they had a planchette that they would place their hands on. Uh, but rather than the board sliding over a... Um, the, the planchette sliding over a board with letters on it, they had a pen or a pencil inserted into the planchette. And when they put their hands on it, it moved around and it wrote things. Oh. And here's the kicker. Um, they were doing this on a large table and they needed large rolls of paper to do this on. Well, the largest rolls of paper that were available were some rolls of wallpaper. <laughs> Okay. And if you looked at their original writings in their diary, it said the writing appeared on the wallpaper while everyone was watching. Oh. And that got misinterpreted, honestly misinterpreted and misreported by people saying, oh, gee, writing appears on the wallpaper. You assume that means the wall. That's where wallpaper usually and lives. And so that's, <laughs> that's what the story now says. It says this writing appeared on the walls of the house. Interesting. That's really cool. It was really cool. And that was... That was something that really made a connection, a personal connection to this whole process of solving mysteries for me that really kind of cemented my, my passion for how much fun it is. Yeah. Then there's this, I think, trend with solving things like this, too, that if you, if you buy the ghost explanation or, you know, if you, uh, uh, you know, other explanations for other hokey sounding things, then you're kind of just, you're left and you're like, oh, that is cool. But you're kind of just left kind of like, you know, enjoying the mystery. And you have like this enshrined mystery in your head. When in reality, the, the real explanation is actually really fun and interesting in its own way. And it has the bonus benefit of being true. But it's not like it's just this wet blanket that you're throwing on every cool mystery. You're, you're instead of bringing up this hollow box, you know, in your head for this mysterious thing that you're enjoying you get this actually cool explanation. Like, that's a fun story, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. You can sit back and look at the rainbow and say, oh, that's that's some magical thing. I'm just going to enjoy it from here and assume that it's made by a ghost. Or, you know, you can go and... I guess that's not a good example. I was going to say you can go and actually get the pot of gold <laughs> at the end of the rainbow. Of course, there isn't one, but I think you see what I was going Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can go get actual gold somewhere and gold's real. Yeah. So. And it's uh, oftentimes the real explanation is just so much more fantastical. Like, who could have imagined that there's these tiny, reproducing, evolving things that grow inside us and make us sick? Like, that is, that is kind of mind-blowing in itself. And it's better than, you know, demons don't like you and want you to be miserable for a week or two. Yeah. That's a great example, yeah. It's an amazing, amazing thing to think, to think about that, to think about what's happening. Yeah, it. and that our immune systems have evolved over all these eons to, you know, fight in this sort of a red queen race against, against the two systems. The, 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 the desire to stop at a halfway explanation um, is, is never one that I've been able to understand. Uh, we talked er earlier in this conversation, we mentioned the irre irreducible complexity of the eyeball. Yeah. 
Um, you say, oh, you chop an eyeball in half, it's not going to work anymore. <laughs> and, and if you put no more thought into it than that, you haven't really learned anything interesting or cool. But if you then go and learn about the evolution of the eyeball and, and what totally unexpected and surprising functions these pieces of an eyeball did in fact perform, uh, it's, that's, where the, that's where the fascinating stuff is. Mm. I think I found that's where the excitement it, it is. is, and you know uh, that's that's a I think a theme we've touched on before, not just on this episode but on other ones. Um, I think I first found your show, I think in high school, as as looking on you know I just found iTunes and podcasts and was looking for some stuff on evolution, and you had an episode, might have an episode in the first ten. I found your show, I think, in the first year that it was being made, but it was like an evolution primer for creationists or something. Yeah, and uh-huh. you had this line in there that's always stuck with me that. Evolution in reverse is not accurately simulated by taking an existing organ and, and chopping it in half. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I was curious. You said I remember yeah, that it was a good one. Um, you said he dropped the Bigfoot thing later on, like in your twenties uh, or in your early twenties. What? What was? How did that actually turn out? Uh, what? What finally turned that over for you? Um, deciding that Bigfoot wasn't in fact yeah. real. Uh, I, I would just think that um, a general appreciation and understanding of, of science um, got me to be enthusiastic to learn what were the science explanations for why people are saying Bigfoot isn't real. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was, I was very much uh, conditioned to, uh, to want to learn those and want to want to find out what that was all about. And when you learn it, it's like, oh, well, that makes sense. I never heard that from the, uh, from the pro Bigfoot guys before. Gotcha. I think you mentioned once on another show that either, either you made fake Bigfoot prints or fake crop circles or something. The crop circles, I was blown away by the crop circles when I saw how they actually made them. Because like on, oh, yeah. on the documentaries, they like had a helicopter come down like, look, it's impossible to make these with any sort of modern technology. And then it's just two dudes with a piece of board and a string. <laughs> it's like, really? Oh my God, I've been sold this bill of goods that you can do with a board and a string. The, the thing that gets me about that is when you look at the depths that the that the believers go to where they're picking the the bent stalks and they're analyzing them with the microscope mm-hmm. and they're looking at the cell damage <laughs> and they're deciding this cell damage couldn't have been done by any earthly cause. <laughs> like a human foot. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is obviously the product of antimatter rays. Jeez. Yeah. <laughs> oh. It's kind of it's kind of sad, but kind of funny. Well, we are coming up on an hour. Is there anything that either of you wanted to say or finish with? I just hope people will go and look at the sciencefriction.tv website. Uh, if, uh, if you don't want to donate to it, at least watch the trailer because it's enjoyable. You, know, you will have fun with that. And uh, there's some social media sharing tools on there. Uh, some of your friends on Facebook and Twitter will really enjoy watching that trailer as well. So... That's something that everyone can do that doesn't cost you a penny, is at least go watch it, enjoy it, and share it. And it would help us out a lot. And it would help out everyone getting this movie made uh, sooner and better uh, is going to be a good thing, I think, for everyone in the world. Yeah. And we'll put up uh, links both in the show description and on our website. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, yeah of course. There's also principlesofcuriosity.com and uh, skeptoid.com or skeptoid.org. Do you have both? 
Um, so skeptoid.org is the sort of the corporate website for the nonprofit. Skeptoid.com is the podcast. Gotcha. So yeah, everyone should check those out too. I talk about the show once in a while, so yeah, everyone, everyone knows I'm a fan. Almost, I dare yes, once say Thank religiously for like a decade now. I mean, every week. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> about as often as people go to church. That's if right. they're really religious <laughs> about it. <laughs> cool. All right. Well, thank you for coming on. This was wonderful. Yeah, thank you guys so much. It's always so it's always fun to be. Yeah, here. thanks, Brian. I really appreciate it. And we wish you the best of luck. Thank you. That's good. Bye bye. The universe itself keeps on expanding and expanding in all of the directions it can whiz. As fast as it can go, at the speed of light, you know, twelve million miles a minute, and that's the fastest speed there is. So remember when you're feeling very small and insecure, how amazingly unlikely is your birth. And pray that there's intelligent life somewhere up in space, cause there's bugger all down here on Earth. And now on to listener feedback. Uh, we recorded this episode just a few days after our marriage episode, so we do not have any new feedback to go into yet. However, we will still thank our uh, awesome supporters. This week, it's Mirzan Irkugolov is my my best guess. I'm going to do that my, one to you. Yeah, doing my bad Russian impersonation. And it's probably not Russian, but it's, it looks Eastern European. All Eastern European languages look Russian to Americans. So that's, sorry well, about that. And in my defense, I'm Eastern European. I was born in Poland and my parents taught me how to read Polish and they still look Russian. So, you know, you see the ovs or, and the, the yeah. Anyways, going way off on a tangent. Thank you for your support. Uh, it's, it's awesome. And it really makes us feel happy to know that people like us enough to throw us a buck, you know? Thanks, Mirzan. It means something. And the, since we don't have listener feedback, I do have a thing that, uh, harking back a few episodes where we were talking about uh, science and spirituality, and uh, someone, I don't even remember who anymore, mentioned that like Richard Feynman was the stereotypical example of a like cold, spocky scientist. I think Jesse brought him up as that, and I thought that was the worst example to bring up. Yes. Because uh, Feynman was kind of the opposite of that. Yeah. He wasn't like the... I'm trying to think of somebody who does fit, does fit that description. I don't think uh, there's anyone that actually fits that description. Is there any? I mean, there's got to be Outside the ones of who fiction, fit, you know? Yeah. <laughs> there's got to be ones that fit it better than Feynman. Um, but yeah, in any case, uh, by all means, continue. I just, yeah, big fan of Feynman. Yeah. I So I found this quote from Feynman that, I mean, I already mm, talked about this once in a previous uh, host feedback episode session, but I, I just have this quote from him that I wanted to read. Uh, Feynman said, I have a friend who's an artist, and he's sometimes taken a view which I don't agree with very well. He'll hold up a flower and say, look how beautiful it is, and I'll agree, I think. And he says, you see, I, as an artiste, can see how beautiful this is. But you, as a scientist, oh, take this all apart, and it becomes a dull thing. And I think that he's kind of nutty. First of all, the beauty that he sees is available to other people, and to me too. I believe, although I might not be quite as refined aesthetically as he is, but I can appreciate the beauty of a flower. At the same time, I see much more about the flower than he sees. I can imagine the cells in there, the complicated actions inside, which also have a beauty. 
I mean, it's not just beauty at this dimension of one centimeter. There's also beauty at a smaller dimension, the inner structure. Also the processes, the fact that the colors in the flower evolved in order to attract insects to pollinate it is interesting. It means that insects can see the color. It adds a question. Does this aesthetic sense also exist in the lower forms? Why is it aesthetic? All kinds of interesting questions which shows that scientific knowledge only adds to the excitement and mystery and the awe of a flower. It only adds. I don't understand how it subtracts. And I totally agree. And I think he was, you know, even a bit too nice to his artist friend there because his artist friend was being a douchebag and, and <laughs> knowing more about things really does make them deeper and more beautiful and more interesting. It's like people. The more you know about them, the cooler they are. I'll plug again. Um, Richard Dawkins's kind of book-length version of this paragraph was Unweaving the Rainbow. Mm -hmm. And that's a, a response to that Keats poem that Newton removed or destroyed the beauty of the rainbow by reducing it to prismatic colors and basically by understanding it. Yeah. And uh, Dawkins is, you know, he's popular now for kind of being, you know, curmudgeoning about religion and stuff. But that that's, you know, Dawkins complaining about stuff he doesn't like. When, when you've got him excited about something that he loves, it's really a beautiful read. And it was one of the most uh, just impassioned and uh, I can't think of another word for it, but it really ignited for me a, a love of science in a way like that. That love was there, but it really poured, it poured gasoline on that fire. It was awesome. So strong recommend. Cool. Um, I, I remembered at our last listener feedback, uh, we had Naveen here and we read a listener feedback about someone who said, I don't really care about the economics of the situation. I just want my internet to uh, work for me, which uh, right away, Naveen was like, oh, come on, what the fuck? This is important. And I also like expressed disbelief. And we went on that for a while. But afterwards, I felt bad about how we did, how he said that and how we were uncharitable to him about this. So I want to... Uh, address that in a, a slightly more serious note. Yes, the economics of things are always very important. It's how we got to where we are now. It's why our society works. But on the other hand, I can also really, really empathize with sometimes not caring about the economics. Like, if my dad has cancer, and he's going to die in a few months, and the cancer drug would save his life, and it only costs the company a few dollars to make the cancer drug, but they're charging ten twenty thousand dollars for a course and i can't uh, afford it i don't give a shit about the economics of the situation or that this is how we fund research into medicine and this is the reason we have good drugs and this is the reason people's lifespans are as long as they are because that that after a drug is found for the next 10 years you can't get the drug unless you're super rich right uh, in that situation i just want my dad to be alive and fuck the system yeah, this, all you see in the system is somebody standing between you and a cure. So. Exactly. They, they're for for pure base profit for something that only cost them a few dollars. My dad's gonna die, and that really hurts. And so I can absolutely empathize with the not caring about the economics economics of a situation, and that's also the reason we have that system because sometimes, for the good of the system in general, some people get hurt, and and that sucks. But. If that wasn't the case, we wouldn't have had those drugs at all. And 10 years from now, there wouldn't be people getting this drug cheaply because the drug would have never been developed in the first place. So, yeah, I don't know what to say about that. Sometimes sometimes stuff is just shitty because we don't have a post-scarcity economy yet. 
Was that your feedback? You said you you wanted to touch on your update on that neutrality. Was that it? That was that was basically ah. it. Yeah, that I understand that that sometimes you don't care, and there's a very good reason for not caring. All right. Well, then that's all we got this week. It'll be a slightly shorter episode than usual, but that's okay. Little give Kyle a little break. Oh my God, we almost forgot to thank Kyle. And massive <laughs> thanks to Kyle who puts in untold hours working on this shit every week, and we thank him for it. I think we forgot to thank him. Yeah. Uh, explicitly last week so double yeah. thanks Kyle yeah you know that the show wouldn't happen without you and nobody would listen to it without you either so yeah uh, everyone say a silent thank you to Kyle Moore for <laughs> for making this presentable cool leave it leave an empty space for him at your what is that dinner where they leave an empty space I have no idea oh there's a Jewish tradition Shabbat oh uh, hold on um, Shiva no that's no, that's where you sit with the body yeah. uh, maybe we shouldn't speculate on religions that we don't know much about yeah so just you know just just hold kyle in your thoughts <laughs> <laughs> he is the holy ghost of the trinity he doesn't really get much airtime, but <laughs> but you, you need him in there that's right okay. before we get even more insane let's let's go ahead and sign off i think all right peace out guys thanks thank for listening